Hello and welcome to Tower Hill Online. I'm Karen G and this is our weekly sermon recap. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this message helps you grow in your faith and feel free to share it with others so that they can enjoy it too. This week, we're in part two of our sermon series called Living the Good Life. In this series, we'll journey through the book of Ephesians to learn what the true good life is and how to get it. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason Tucker right now. Being in the church, that's what we're talking about today. As we're talking about what does it mean to live the good life? Ah, living the good life. We started last week a little bit. I was having fun. Hopefully nobody was offended at the white teeth thing, but you know. That's like, when I moved to this area, like everybody's got white teeth, we're all drinking coffee. How does that work? Anyway, you learn a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise kids. And listen, we get to go to the beach and we get to, you know, feet in the sand and live in the good life and, you know, take, maybe taking some vacations and all of that. And all of that's great. But is that really what it means to be living the good life? I don't know, man. I I know a lot of folks who have it all who feel like they have nothing. I know a lot of people that spent their whole life chasing after the good life only to discover it was right there in Jesus Christ the whole time. Because everything in this world is temporary. It's not a great stuff, right? You love living in a nice house and living in whatever it is. It's all good. I'm not going to say it's bad, but it shouldn't be our self-identity. Who we are is more than what we do for a living or the status of our investments or how hard we're crushing it at work. That shouldn't be our identity. Our identity runs much deeper. And when you start to figure that out, you start to realize that living the good life is about your relationship with God. Living the good life doesn't have anything to do with your circumstance. It has to do with Jesus living in you. And I want to be clear. You know, I was joking around about wealth. Not joking, but you know, we were talking about wealth last week and how I don't want you to get the impression, because this is the thing that, it's a pet peeve of mine with churches. When churches will say things like, money is the root of all evil, better give it to us. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. That's, it's not that wealth is the problem. It, wealth just creates perhaps more opportunity to get derailed. Wealth in and of itself is not the problem. It's when wealth becomes our identity. It's when we start to be driven by it. And incidentally, you could be over-obsessed with money whether you have none or you have a lot. You're always thinking about it. Well, my life will just be better if when I hit this mark, man, that's going to be the good life. When I upgrade, 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 that's going to be the good life. And what happens is then we miss the life that God's blessed us with today because we're too worried about the things that we hope we get tomorrow. It's not wrong to wish for things. It's not wrong to look ahead and try to achieve something. But you'll never get where you want to go if it's just, you're just subject to whatever happens, the circumstance in your life. In the end, wealth and everything else is all about identity. It's about identity. And so we said last week, knowing who you are in Christ is the secret to living the good life, or at least the starting point. 
Because, and again, just a quick review, we talked about the balloon, right? The self-esteem versus God-esteem balloon. It's either about who I say I am or who others say I am or who does God say I am. It's a big difference. The balloon inflates, I feel good about myself. Hey, I'm having a good day. Had a great meeting at work. I, I, got, I got a pat on the shoulder. I got a raise. I got a bonus. I got, right? The balloon blows up. I'm feeling good, feeling good. And then the next bad thing happens. And then we feel down. We feel depressed or whatever, defeated. And the way it works is God is saying, no, no, you are my child no matter what. I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I am here for you. I am here to love you and not forsake you. I am here to give you hope and a future. I love you so much, I laid down my life for you. Yes, you, flaws and all, doesn't matter, I'm with you. And that balloon stays inflated no matter what. That's living the good life. And then once you know who you are, you can know who you're destined to be. When you know who you are in Christ, you start to get a glimpse of the destiny he has laid out for your life. That's when things really click in your life. That's when things really come together. When you start walking in lockstep with God's plan. There is nothing, I'll tell you this now, there is nothing that feels better than knowing you're right where God wants you. Nothing. Knowing right where God wants you. And here's the scripture last week, just to review. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We talked about adoption. Like we are all adopted sons and daughters of God. The only one who was a son by birth was Jesus Christ. Because he didn't struggle, he didn't have sin like we do. So then once that sin's forgiven, we are adopted into the family of God and said, what a beautiful picture that is to think about life with God as adoption. Because adoption is so beautiful. It's a, it's a relationship that's based on love. You adopt a child out of love. God adopts us out of love. He brings us into the family. But it's also a legal change of status. We're brought in, and the paperwork's all changed. I talked about that last week. And it's as if you were always part of the family. The old you on paper is gone. It's just the new you and your new family. This is like us with God. God adopts us. We become heirs. We become part of the family forever. You're not going to erase it. You're not going to be able to tear that thing up. It's forever. I think one of the nasty things that happens to us is we just start believing we're not good enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. I don't go to church enough. I'm just not wired that way. I just can't be that kind of. I'm, hopefully, I'm good enough to get in, right? I'm like, <laughs> right? I, mean, it's, I don't know. Well, can I have that? Well, it's never been about that at all. Like, you're in. You're, you said yes to a life. A faith, you say, believe in Jesus Christ, you're in. You're part of the family. You're adopted in. Whether we see you a lot at Thanksgiving or not, you're adopted into the family. Funny thing about adoption, though, you can't always choose the family situation 
that you might, like, I don't know, it, sometimes you join a family and you just got to work through some relationships because it's a little weird. Or maybe, you know, by marriage, I'm sure none of you struggle with this, I'm saving you on this one, none of you struggle with this, but you know, maybe you have some in-laws, maybe you have some people that you're legally bound with, that, and sometimes it can be a struggle. Sometimes people in your family are weird. <laughs> they show up and no one wants to talk to them because you don't want to get an earful about how, you know, daisies are actually uh, destroying the environment or something. Yeah, I mean, it's like some conspiracy. I don't know. You're like, I don't know. I don't want to talk to them, right? Or you get, or you get the uncle. They're like, I don't know if we're going to leave the kids with, you know. I don't. You just, you just got to figure that out. You got to navigate that stuff. It's awkward. Families like that, though. You sort of endure. You kind of get through it. You try to patch things up because you're family, after all. It's, it's kind of like being a Raiders fan. <laughs> like, I'm part of a family. There's dudes I may not hang out with normally. But if I'm at the game... I get to, whenever I go to a Raiders game and hanging out with Raider fans, it's hilarious. But it's also like, you never feel safer in your life. Being a Raider fan, you're like, dude, this guy, I, he's definitely packing. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what's going on, but like, but they're like, hey, hey you know, come on, come on, have some food. Have, you know, there's, it's so cool. So you're part of a family, but at the same time, it may not always be the people that you're hanging out with. Maybe there are members of your family that you usually try to avoid because we're just different. We're just different. And I'm going to be honest with you. If church is a family, I think we struggle with this too. Because I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this out of love, and I'm also pointing the finger at myself. Some of the weirdest people that I know are church people. I don't know what to do with that. I'm just telling you. But you already know that. And, you know, you probably refer to me as the weird pastor. Like, that's fine. I'm good with that. But we're all a little odd. We're a family. But here's, here's why I'm going into all this. is because we may be tempted because, uh, you know, we don't just want to show up to that Thanksgiving or whatever. Maybe tempted to try to go our lives and our faith alone without them. You're never going to get to where you want to go all by yourself. This is true in life. This is true in faith. And when you don't have a family, you suffer the consequences. A lot of you, you could share lots of stories about this in your life. Some of you who actually have adopted children, you know that this is true. Or some of you who've been adopted, you know that this is true. When you don't have a family, you have a tendency to go off the rails. You have a tendency to go off the rails. And every time in my faith, if I really think about it, when I've struggled in my faith, it's because I haven't really been doing life with other Christians at all. It's sort of a desert island thing. Like if you, if you leave someone on an island for long enough, they're just going to get strange, right? They're going to start talking to the volleyball. Like, 
You need people to help bring you back, to keep you on the rails, to encourage you, to lift you up. It's like a team, right? You're not going to do well. You're not going to achieve your potential if you're not being encouraged, pushed, told to step up, told it's okay. You're not going to get there. You're not going to reach maturity. You're not going to be that person that you could be if you try to walk it alone. You'll suffer the consequences. Karen and I, early in our marriage, it was just a year after we got married, we ran a group home. And um, I don't know if that was a great idea, first thing for marriage, but uh, we had six uh, teenage girls in our home, and they would rotate. So some would be there for like a week, some would be there. We had a couple of kids our entire year that we were there. And they all were sort of a, sort of a halfway house. Like either there was trouble at home or they got in trouble with the law. There's often drugs involved. But here's the thing that they all had in common. They all felt like they didn't have a family. They had no family life. They had absent parents, neglectful parents, or abusive parents. And when you don't feel like you have a family, you go off the rails. We, that was the thing that we saw in common with all of them. It was heartbreaking. This is true in our spiritual lives. is that if we don't have family, if, you don't, if not with uh, trying to do life with other people of faith, you'll go off the rails and you'll wonder how you got so far from God. This is a message that Paul was really trying to get into the Ephesians as we talked about, we saw those first few verses. He was trying to describe to them that now you, Jewish people who started following Jesus and all non-Jewish people who started following Jesus, they couldn't have been any more different. He said, now, you're not just two different groups in one church. You're one group. And this is why it matters. There are eternal consequences to this. So, Paul's argument is that Jesus made Jews and Gentiles one. And again, last week we went into this. It was a little deeper dive, so just touching it real quickly. But here we go in chapter two. He says this, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, Gentiles, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. This this is truly like how the Jewish people who started to follow Jesus believe. It's like, like, we're the chosen ones, All the other non-Jewish people who want to follow Christ, that's great. There's lots of room in the back. We're so glad that you're here. But if if we need to take a vote, we're the ones voting. Because we're the chosen ones. We're the people of God. We have a covenant with God. You're like the heathens who decided to clean up their act and show up to church. Right? You're not the same as us. And Paul says, before, that's how it was. You were separate from Christ. And I wonder if, if the Jewish Christians in the room would have been like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've been saying. What have I been saying? But now, next verse, but now. But now in Christ Jesus. But now, everything changes. Everything that was true before is now changed because of Jesus. But now. And I feel like, In our lives, we need to embrace that phrase. 
Because, man, we beat ourselves up with the same old junk over and over again. And we need to remind ourselves, but now, those mistakes that we made, but now, that person that I was yesterday, but now, in Christ Jesus, something else is happening. Something else has changed. But now, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Setting aside the law, all those things that made you a Jewish person to adhere to the law, ceremonial law, purity law, moral law, all of that. All of that, it's all those regulations that you nailed you know, the non-Jewish people for and said they were unclean. All of that has been set aside. Not that it doesn't matter. It's been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But now all of that's been set aside in his flesh. And this dividing wall of hostility is certainly spiritual, right? Like, those non-God-fearing people, there's like a wall there that Jesus has eclipsed. But there was also, we talked about this around Easter, so there was actually a wall that archaeologists found uh, that had an inscription on it. So that separated the inner court from the outer court. The outer court's where anybody can go. The inner court's where only Jewish people can go. And that wall had a sign, an inscription, that basically said, you know, you only have yourself to blame for your own death, Gentile, if you continue forward, right? It was, it was a message of hostility. So some think Paul may be actually talking about the wall of hostility that divided the Jews from the Gentiles. Either way, whether it's he's talking about the physical one or the spiritual one, he's saying that's all erased. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No matter where you came from, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what color your skin, no matter what your socioeconomic status, no matter if you were a person of faith before or not, you were all, all, all brought into the family of God. Yes, even the ones you don't want to hang out with. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That, one new humanity. It's like we were Gentiles and we were Jewish people, and now we're not either of those. We're something else. A new humanity. Whatever you were before, you are something different in Jesus. You're part of a different family. It doesn't mean, you know, listen, it doesn't mean like separate from the relationships in your life or anything kind of odd like that. It's just, you're part of something new. You ever have that happen where you, you go somewhere and you don't know anybody, but you meet somebody and they turn out to be a Christian, and then all of a sudden you feel known, and you're able to start talking about things instantly because you share that connection of the Spirit. One out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the part that we don't often get, is that Jesus rarely talks about individual faith. He mostly talks about community faith. You obviously need the first for the second to happen, but he's always talking about how we're living life together, and, he, and the term a body is used to explain it. It's like we're, we're in this new reality. We are part now of the body of Christ, and we have a part to play in it. And we could ignore it and we could run away from it. Those are all options. But you're never going to reach the potential of who you're meant to be without actively being part of the body. And it's crazy, right? He's like, we're all one. We're all children of God, all adopted, not separated anymore. It's kind of, it's like... uh, it's even way crazier than this, but it's like, let's say in the next election cycle, Republicans and Democrats, oh, the election cycle. Oh. Let's say Republicans and Democrats come together. Like, all right, look, we're, we're trying something new this year. We've been talking. We got some tacos. We sat down. We decided, although we don't agree on a lot of things, the other party does things that we don't do well. We do things that they don't do well. And we think together we could be better leading this country than if we tried to just keep fighting and pushing our agendas. So we're going to get rid of Republicans and Democrats. It's going to be both and. We're going to be the Republicrats. And we're going we're to change everything. We're going to do it together. I mean, that would be, like, impossible, <laughs> sadly. I think it would be awesome, but whatever. But that's not even close to even as wild as the idea of we're one new humanity. It'd be like saying, okay, yes, uh, us in Russia, you know, we sat down, we're like, hey, you know, let's just become one new country. Or whoever we think our enemy is, if it's North Korea or whoever it is. We are now one new country. We're no longer separate. We're, we're new. Enemies becoming one. And that's not even as crazy as what God is talking about. We are one body. One foundation, one new humanity, one holy temple. Do you know what he's saying there? It's a spiritual temple. We are in, you, know, you hear the phrase, your, your body's your temple? Where do you think that comes from? And not just your body, but the body of Christ, all of us together, we become a dwelling place for God, a temple for God. All who are far away and all who were near. Again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are one family, and we each have a vital part to play. And one more thing. We'll never mature in faith if we're just doing it on our own. Here's the follow-up to this in chapter 4. It says this. Then, if we're together, if we're one body together, we will no longer be infants Tossed back and forth by the waves and blowing here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people 
in their deceitful scheming. What do I mean? I mean, listen, you go onto Facebook, you go onto Twitter, and somebody will say something about what Christians believe. And if you're not part of a community of faith that can wrestle that out, you might, you might fall for it. It's easier for you to get convinced of the lie when you're all by yourself. That's what this has. Your, your spiritual maturity is going to happen as a team. Next slide. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Again, you will never realize your full potential without the body of Christ, is what we believe. So, knowing... Who you are in Christ is the secret to living the good life. It's about your identity. But then the second part is growing your faith and following your purpose is a team sport that you do with your family. So what's that look like? It means the first, you need to do life with other Christians. And it's, it's for you. But it's also for them, right? Others need you to lift them up. Again, I love the team sports analogy because it's so perfect. Is, you know, you could fail. In one game, you could fail and play poorly. And you need a team to say, hey, get back in there. We need you to keep going. You'll have another chance. If we were all by ourselves and we had no support, we might quit. Because this is life. And newsflash, life is hard. And it's really hard to be faithful people in an unfaithful world. It's really hard to show the love of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, without people thinking we're crazy. To a whole world that's trying to tear down and we're trying to build up, that's hard work. It's really hard to do it by yourself. So, what can you do about it? What can you do about it today? What can you do about it in the next week? Listen, the first step is just showing up. Like, hey, we're having pancakes next week. Show up. Have pancakes. Talk with some people intentionally that you don't know. Start to develop that community, body of Christ muscle. Maybe it needs to get developed. Another thing, we've been talking like crazy about these small groups. Every age and stage, even different stages of faith. My group, for example... My, I'm doing a study on the case for Christ. So it's anybody who is sort of a skeptic or maybe you're new to the faith or you're beginning your journey of faith, that's perfect for you. There are others, like maybe you've been walking with God for a long time. Maybe you're a young mom and you, know, you need a, to find some of your people. Maybe, right? It's all over the place. Get connected. Start doing life with other people. It's not a lifetime commitment. These are like six-week groups. You can do anything for six weeks. And let's say you get to the group and it's like all the weird members of the family... <laughs> you can sign up for a different group later, right? You know, like it's not a lifetime commitment. <laughs> the point of adoption is to live as part of a family. So don't miss it. And you'll find that you'll pretty soon 
We live in the good life. Amen.